Welcome to Invited Dress, a series of radio plays developed by artists in intermission. This week, we bring you In the Dark Times, Will There Also Be Singing? by Diane Nora. This episode was directed by Jacqueline Biska. Be sure to stick around after the reading when our creative director, Aaron Roberts, sits down with Diane and Jacqueline to talk more about this project. And with that, Invited Dress presents In the Dark Times, Will There Also Be Singing? An epigraph. In the Dark Times, Will There Also Be Singing? Yes, there will also be singing about the dark times. Motto, Bertolt Brecht. A prologue, an airplane, first class cabin. On one side of the aisle, Thomas sits upright, holding a book. He's nervous. He glances repeatedly at Martha Truman, who sleeps in a seat across the aisle from him. After a moment, Martha stirs. She notices Thomas staring at her. Have you always been there? No. So you're just like watching me sleep? I was reading. You're looking at me. You're speaking to me. You were looking at me when my eyes opened. No, I... I was reading. Your book is closed. That was an untruth. I did look at you, but I wasn't looking at you the whole time. Is that a Bible? Psalm. Oh, you're a psalm. No, it's... I'm afraid of flying. Nervous, I should say. Not afraid. It's just... Sometimes it's nice to look at something. You're okay. And you're very beautiful, so you're nice to look at. Well, thank you. But I wasn't looking at you the whole time. How long was I out? At least 40, uh, at least 43 minutes. I'd say at least 43 and a quarter minutes. Estimating. What? I got moved to this seat about 43, I'm closer to 44 now. About 44 minutes ago. I'm Martha Truman. That's a nice name. Not particularly. And you are? Thomas. Thomas Fairweather. My dad's name is Tom. Oh, I'm Thomas. Can I see that? She gestures toward his book. He hands it to her. I like the gold on the edges. So do I. It's like it's telling you to lean in. Listen up, this one's important. Right? Not like Stephen King or some shit, Nora Roberts. I like Stephen King. I mean, it's not common. That was an untruth. I haven't actually read any Stephen King. Me neither. But I like his movies. I've never seen any of his movies. None of them? Not that I can recall. <laughs> you weren't there when we took off, right? I didn't, like, totally block that out, did I? I got bumped up. There was a dog in my row. Sweet. Mm, I'm allergic to dogs. Oh, right on. I'm allergic to penicillin. If I even get close to a dog, I start sneezing uncontrollably, and my eyes get all puffy, and then my throat starts to close. Oh, that must really suck. Yeah, I'm all right. Oh, dogs are way better than people. Have you been in first class before? No. Shit! We gotta get you a drink! She presses the call light for the flight attendant. Uh, no thanks. He reaches over and turns the call light off. You know it's free, right? I don't drink. Wait, you're like a Mormon or something? No. Oh, thank God. The Church of Latter-day Saints is quite lenient, actually. The Mormons? Oh, yes. 
We only consider Joseph Smith to be a minor prophet. Ah, oh, when you say we, you mean... My church. The Church of Revelation of Christ the Father. Oh, I, I mm -hmm. think I've heard of that. Oh, it's okay if you haven't. No, I've heard the name. It's small, right? There are a few dozen of us. You're from up north? Yes. Pulling a small bottle of vodka out of her bag. Wow. Uh, well, fuck it. I think we should celebrate. First time flying first class? You'll never go back. It's my first time flying. Period. No shit. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeedy. Ah, oh, you don't have to be nervous. She unbuckles her seatbelt and takes the seat beside him. They had uh, um, uh, the fasten seatbelt sign on just oh. a minute ago. That's a liability thing. I think it's a safety thing. No, they're covering their asses. They want to make sure if anything bad happens, no one with money has to deal with it. Well, they said over the, uh, the, the stewardess said there was turbulence. That's a good thing. What? Turbulence. It means the plane is working properly. Does it? Yeah, when you feel the plane moving up and down, it's adjusting to the pressure outside the air. It's a good thing. It means it's doing what it was designed to do. <laughs> That's a nice way of looking at it. Besides, no modern airliner has ever been brought down by turbulence. Is that... Mm -hmm. That can't be true. It is. You know an awful lot about airplanes. A bit. Are, are you a pilot or something? No, I'm just wealthy. How'd you end up here? They bumped me up because there was a dog in my row, so, you know, allergies We did and... that part. How did you end up on a red-eye headed across the country? Oh. Uh, I'm on a mission. What about you? I'm on a bender. What's your mission? It's a tradition in my church. When we come of age, we take a year away to spread the word. Hmm, no offense, but aren't you a little old for that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I'm 28. In four months, four and a half months, uh, four months and 16 days. <laughs> Why so late? Well, I, I, I had a delayed start. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, better late than... I'm bringing people the word of Christ the Father. Right. I thought Christ was the Son. Well, he is. But he becomes the Father when he takes on the sin of the world. See, he's Father and Son. Like the Holy Trinity. No, that's a Catholic thing. Is it? I was raised Presbyterian. I think we had the Holy Trinity. We don't believe in the Holy Ghost. Do you believe in any ghosts? Uh, I believe in angels. Is that a line? I'm not sure what you mean. Uh-huh. You're kind of cute. Thank you. Uh, Martha, I apologize if I gave you the wrong impression. What do you mean? When I called you beautiful before? Uh, okay. Uh, uh, you are. I, I just mean to say, mm, I'm a man of God. We might be Episcopalian, actually. I think my mom's family was Episcopalian. Did you say your father's name was Tom? Uh-huh. Tom Truman. Yep. The Tom Truman. Yeah, that's him. 
The man who owns the company that makes these planes. Yeah, pretty much all planes. Wow. Commercial planes, anyway. He's more into tech companies now, though. Impressive. He thinks so. He's about the richest man in America. Ninth richest, I think. People are pretty angry with him. You can say that again. You think things will calm down soon? I think... I think... People have been unhappy for a long time. And things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. I like the way you say things. Thanks. I've seen you on television. No, probably not. No, I have. You were with your dad talking at some press conference? My uh, sister, Jane, she's more involved with the business stuff. Or it might have been a campaign thing. Yeah, no, no, yeah, that wasn't me. They keep me hidden away for the politics stuff. <laughs> Speaking of liability. Mm, are you sure? Uh, very. Which is weird, because I used to be the prettier one, just between us. I'm not saying that just to be, like, braggy, either. Our features just fit on my face better, I think. Jane's the smarter one, so it was fair. I would have killed to be the smarter one. You seem smart. Oh, I'm not, really. I'm normal smart, but Jane's, like, smart smart. Anyway, she got really hot recently. Like, what the fuck? Who gets hot at 31? <laughs> but it still drives me crazy that people can't tell us apart. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you're fine. I don't mean you. I just think, like... We look so different. I mean, yeah, we're identical, but I can always tell us apart. That's good. I imagine that could be disorienting. <laughs> the only thing I can't tell apart is our hands. I remember she was making pancakes one morning, and I was watching her hold this spatula, and I kept thinking, those are my hands. You have beautiful hands. For a second, I thought about doing something to them. Her hands. Like, I thought I could just hold her hand onto the stovetop, and then her hands wouldn't look like mine anymore. Uh, gosh. But I didn't. Obviously, I would never do that. Good. I don't like hurting other people, especially Jane. Maybe I could do it to my hands, though. Like, sometimes I think maybe I should put a cigarette out on the back of my hand just to mark it. Thomas grabs Martha's hands. Don't do that. Oh, I won't. <laughs> I, I don't even have any cigarettes. Do you smoke? Cigarettes? No, no, not really. I quit. Why? Do you have cigarettes? Uh, I, I don't smoke. Right. Yeah, no, I quit. He moves his hands away from hers. I used to smoke a shit ton of weed. <laughs> My cousin grows the dankest stuff on the coast. Wow. Okay, I know how that sounds, but really, it's so good. It'll change your life. Oh, my God. What? Oh, we have to smoke together. I don't oh, know. Oh, my God, yes. I have to smoke you out. You'd love Laszlo, too. Laszlo? My cousin. He's kind of crazy, but he's the real deal. Oh, brother. Well, no, not crazy. I shouldn't say crazy. He just gets carried away is all, like... He thought the lady who brings our mail was in love with him. She's like this middle-aged lady just doing her job. I mean, she works it, but you know, she's like twice his age or something. And I was like, Leslo, she's not in love with you. Why do you think that? And he said, because she comes to see me every day. 
maybe he's telling the truth. I don't think so. I think she ended up asking to be transferred to another route or something. Oh, was he sad? Maybe. He's sad a lot, so it's hard to say. Oh. I think he'd like you, though. He lives with you? With my family, yeah. Him and his mom. I have my own place, though, in the city. That sounds nice. Well, had. They kind of kicked me out, so... Christ. Headed home now. What a goddamn cliché. Tail between my legs, prodigal daughter, all that shit. That's not what that means, actually. What? Prodigal. People think it means a child returning home after being away because of the parable. That's not what prodigal means? Nope. Well, what's it mean, then? It means wasteful with money. Rash, extravagant. Huh. Well, still applies, then. It must be nice. Huh. Having all that family around, somewhere to come home to? It's something. I... <laughs> I don't have many friends, to be honest. Oh, I'm sorry. No, don't be. I, <laughs> I shouldn't tell people that. It's cool. Maybe you just haven't found your people yet. Yes, that may be. No. No, I can't say that. My people found me. How do you mean? I was in the system as a kid. I was a ward of the state, and the church took me in. So you were adopted? Well, no, they're my foster parents. Right on. You get more money from the state if you foster a kid than if you adopt. I never knew that. They didn't have a lot of money. They gave me their name, though. What's your last name again? Fairweather. Thomas Fairweather. Yeah, that suits you. <laughs> it works just fine. I always felt like I should have a different name. Martha's nice. I feel like I should have been a Vivian or something. Cassandra. <laughs> I don't know. I like Martha an awful lot. You're really cute. You know that? What? Uh, I... I I don't know. Thomas, do you ever feel an overwhelming urge to corrupt someone? Oh, uh, no. No, I can't say that I felt that. She kisses him sweetly. He pulls away. He looks down. I'm sorry you went through all that. That sounds really hard. I'm pretty lucky, I think. How do you mean? Lots of people are lost. Not many get found. Thomas kisses Martha. It grows more passionate. She takes him by the hand and leads him into the plain bathroom. Some time passes. Sounds of rustling from inside the bathroom, some awkward thumps, heavy breathing. After a moment, he emerges, his head in his hands, hyperventilating. He begins pacing. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. She steps out, adjusting her clothes. You're okay. He sits in his seat. He puts his head between his legs. She crouches in front of him, trying to soothe him. You're okay. I didn't tell you the truth before, Martha. What? 
I told you an untruth. I'm sorry. No, 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 that's okay. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Martha, do, do you believe in the angel of death? The what? The angel of death. Of course not. <laughs> the truth is... <laughs> the truth is... I have wanted to do that. To corrupt someone. I think I... I think I have an evil thing inside of me. I, I think I'm made of mm -mm. sin. No, don't say that. No. <laughs> it's true, I'm cursed. No. I bring out the worst in people. I find the evil thing lurking inside of them, under their skin, and I, I, I make them the worst version of themselves. He looks at her. Hey, hey. She hands him a mini bottle of vodka. He takes the top off, but doesn't take a sip. He begins to pray over her, silently. He shakes the bottle over her head, baptizing her. She opens her mouth in a big smile. Look, I think... I, I don't know much about the world, but I think people decide what part of themselves they want to bring out. And we can pretend it's character or fate or God, but eventually... We all have to make a choice. You're not responsible for anyone else being a good person, and they're not responsible for you. But, but I'm supposed to save people. Baby, some people are beyond saving. The seatbelt sign flashes back on. Thomas puts his seatbelt on. The plane jerks up and down a bit. Martha sits down beside Thomas in the seat. She strokes his hair. Suddenly, the plane lurches forward. Martha is thrown out of the seat. Her body flies to the ceiling of the plane. The lights shut. We hear the deafening crack of bones snapping, then a loud thud. After a moment, the lights come back on. Martha lies crumpled on the floor, her neck bent in an unnatural position. Thomas reaches for her hand. She's just beyond his reach. He considers unfastening his seatbelt, he looks at the seatbelt sign. It's still lit. He tries to stretch his arm a bit further without taking his seatbelt off. He can't reach her. He reaches up to turn on the call button for the flight attendant. He waits. He calls out to anyone listening. Hi everyone, my name is Aaron Roberts. I'm the creative director of Invited Dress. And I'm here with Jacqueline, the director, and Diane, the playwright. And we're gonna talk about what we just heard. So, Diane, I'm gonna talk to you first. What was the inspiration for this play? Where did this come from for you? I was gonna say thanks for having us here, but we're all yeah, in different we're being places. Safe. Thank you, COVID-19. Um, I uh, began this play during, uh, after the order to shelter in place started. Uh, I had been in New York working on a show with Jacqueline. The show got shut down. Uh, a few days after that, I had a flight back to Chicago and there was this real feeling of uh, fear and tension. We still knew very little about what would happen, though in some ways that seems like an easier time. <laughs> and uh, I started writing it there. This, the part that we heard was written all in that section um, and it also takes place on a plane. Yeah, I think you can definitely feel that tension that you mentioned 
between these two characters as they sort of uneasily find each other and, and we discover the layers that sort of peel back. So Jacqueline, as we sort of mentioned, we are all doing this separately in our own podcast bedroom studios, as it were. What was it like bringing this play to voice as opposed to a stage? Well, I've never directed for just voice, but I feel like it was the same as directing it to be seen, sort of. I mean, I didn't really do anything too crazy or too different except not look at people's faces while I was listening. It was kind of the same experience as directing it for the stage. You have a brilliant writer, very talented actors. You just get out of their way and let them do their thing and try not to mess it up. And that is what I did. It really shows the simplicity of getting the right people in the right room together and letting the story go as it were. Diane, we've talked a little bit about how this play that we've just heard is actually part of a larger play that you're developing. Can you sort of speak about how this fits in with that larger structure? Yeah, so what we heard is about the first 20 pages or 20 minutes of the play. It's a prologue to a longer play. Most of the rest of the play takes place about a year later. And it's really about Thomas, the character who our friend Xavier Rowe, a um, wonderful actor, read in this scene, comes to visit the family home and sort of chaos ensues. I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, it's sort of about a family crumbling. And I think the play sort of gets crazier and crazier as it develops more and more like a fever dream, I think is a, is a word we were using for it. What we heard is definitely the most grounded part of the play. This play sort of being born of this very intense time that we're living in. Jacqueline, if you can speak to how you see a play that has these themes and, and speaks to this experience, how this fits into like a larger network of plays that you see. Wow, that's a great question. I mean, I only know this play and I only know what I know. And I guess, I mean, I think people are writing about what is happening right now. What's kind of interesting about this play is you can certainly place its genesis in this sort of cultural historical moment but it's not exactly about the pandemic. It's not a sort of parallel to what is happening in our lives right now. I think Diane expresses it best. It's born out of chaos and confusion and uncertainty that we were all feeling and the sort of terror that we were all feeling. And certainly like the factors that have made this pandemic horrible, you know, late stage capitalism and corporate greed are present in this play and also present in this moment. But like I said, it's it's not exactly about this, but it is clearly born out of this moment. I don't know that anyone's writing a play about what's happening to us, because like I think we still don't really fully know <laughs> what's going on. But I do love that this play is, is so clearly born out of this specific cultural historical moment. You know, I mean, that's what makes new plays so exciting is that they're written for and of our time. Yeah, to piggyback off that, I think what you were saying about how we exist in response to a moment, so much of how I think I've learned to process everything happening, um, I learned that in a room with other artists is how I'm used to processing that information, which has been disrupted, of course, because we're all responsibly distancing. So having that opportunity to gather again, even remotely, has been really wonderful. Um, so I'm very grateful for that and for everyone making the time that 
people would focus part of their attention to this, I'm just really grateful. Absolutely. Uh, Jacqueline, I don't know if you've given any thought, and I don't mean to put you on the spot with hard questions, if you've given any thought as the director of, of this episode of how one could start going about staging. I mean, I certainly think of the very descriptive stage direction at the end. Have you given any thought to how that might be achieved? Well, I think Diane does a beautiful job of explaining how it works. You don't really get to see a lot. There's sort of like a, a lot of commotion and we hear the sound of what's happening in the same way that the listener to this podcast hears the sounds of what's happening. Moments like that are so fun. That's the way in which this podcast is just like the play. Like it is sort of up to the viewer to imagine the sort of gruesomeness of it and see only the aftermath, which is the crumpled body. This is an early draft of the play still, and it evolved a little bit, even just in our rehearsals. In that sense, I think what that moment would look like is probably something that would maybe keep changing through previews and would probably be affected by other artists in the room, how the actors would envision that. I don't I don't know. We fly uh, them up. We fly them right, up. Right, we're going to get a rig. It's going to be the whole thing. <laughs> they have a dramatic body gesture and then they we drop them down to the earth and we actually kill someone every time we do it so it's a very expensive show and also very unethical i think of i tend to be quite literal when i write i imagine the thing that will happen is the thing that i wrote down which is why i need collaborators and i'm so lucky to have someone like jacqueline who's like creative but also will go along with my nonsense to and to an extent i honestly think that that death scene is like one of the sanest moments in the play sound design is everything i directed a play where two people decide to get eaten by a tiger at the end I did nothing. I just had a martini and smoked a cigar. The sound designer and the lighting designer did all the work. I'm, I'm so happy that we have a play that relies on, on sound for this podcast. There's also later in the play, a scene that takes place in silence. I'm like obsessed with sound right now. And I was like, what would it be like to have a scene where everything is quiet and taken away? And we don't have that as part of our vocabulary. And also to bring it around, like I think one of the things that is sort of largely thematic with the COVID experience for a lot of folks is the idea of deprivation and how like theatrically sensory deprivation can be very effective. Like Jacqueline, as you mentioned, with like just a sound design and then Diane with this idea of all visuals, no sound. The thing I love about theater is that you do have you know, a conversation with your audience. Uh, just hearing any sort of responses to a work is really exciting. And that's one of the hard things about this moment, not to be able to hear people either laughing or gasping or whatever variation of that, hearing them ruffle through their purse because they got bored. I hope, you know, for people listening that they'll reach out and we can talk about it. Uh, those one-on-one -on -one conversations post-show are usually the most helpful part of any development process for me. So I hope I'll get a chance to be in conversation with people who listen. After working on this first scene, did it change the way that you thought about the play in any way? Where is your head at now? There are a few things that I think I'll need to change about the latter part of the play that I'm grateful to have this information from our meeting. One of them is just like sort of clarifying who Martha is helps me understand what the loss of Martha means for this family. And Maura Kidwell, who was in the room with us and you heard on the recording, is fantastic and was so helpful. Jacqueline asked her a question in rehearsal about whether 
her returning home was something that was like uh, had happened before or whether this was like a unique problem. And I think leaning into the stakes being higher for her, the way that they are for Thomas, is really helpful to me. And I have done some rewrites. But, you know, new, t new play development, the best part is you never have to finish. I love that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Invited Dress. This project is a culmination of volunteer efforts by actors, producers, and technicians. If you'd like to support our team, please consider donating on Venmo at Invited Dress. For more information on the episode and for ways you can get involved as an artist or a listener, check out Invited Dress on Facebook and Instagram. In the Dark Times, Will There Also Be Singing? was written by Diane Nora and directed by Jacqueline Biscuit. This episode was edited by Rachel Creedberg. Our creative director is Aaron Roberts, and our communications director is Emma Dumont. Our executive producer is Ben Fleischer. Special thanks to our graphic designer, Lauren Kleiman. The role of Thomas is voiced by Xavier Rowe. Martha is voiced by Maura Kidwell. Stage directions are read by Katrina Williams. Thanks for listening to In the Dark Times Will There Also Be Singing by Diane Nora. I'm Britana Turkan. Thank you for listening to Invited Dress.